Welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Beatrice Magistro. I'm a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Washington. And here with me today for today's podcast are Rachel Heath, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Washington. Hi, Beatrice. Good to, um, good to be here. Great. And James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington. Hi, Beatrice. Hey, and then Victor Minaldo, also Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington. Hi, everyone, and hi, Beatrice. Okay, so Rachel, James, and Victor are the three organizers of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. And today we're going to talk about what political economy is. And the, question, the first, first question I want to ask you is, what do people who define themselves as political economy folks mean by it? What is political economy? Let's have James go first. Yeah, well, I, I didn't know until recently in my academic career what I, what I think sort of the commonly understood um, sort of definition of political economy is. So when I was an undergrad student, I mean, this is kind of why I like to talk about it is, is I, I actually think it's less obvious than people who call themselves political economists actually think. So when I was an undergrad, I... I wasn't a political science major. I was a double major in history and what was called international relations, but would be considered international studies today, which was an interdisciplinary major of political science, economics, history, and language. And I, you know, I went back and I thought, what were the, there were only two names that I ever remember being associated with political economy as an undergrad. And that was Adam Smith and Karl Marx. Now I'm sure I'm misremembering a lot of this. Um, and I'm sure I wasn't paying attention in a lot of my courses as an undergrad. But I actually learned their names in a political theory class and learned the ways in which they were political economists in a political theory class, not in an econ class and not in a political science class. And I remember thinking, okay, you know Adam Smith because you think that the government has to regulate markets at some level. And you know Karl Marx because you think that sometimes economic forces drive political outcomes. But to me, that was the extent of what I really understood as political economy as an undergrad. And it wasn't until graduate school that I actually sort of understood more the political economy as the intersection of the study of states and markets or political and, and economic actors and institutions and the sort of easy way that in, in, I would say, the modern social sciences that they kind of blend together. But it wasn't really until graduate school and as an undergrad, again, like I, I really had no idea what it was. I think I also thought as an undergrad that political economy was shorthand for rational choice theory like when people say they do political economy of development or political economy of this and that, it just meant that they were using rational choice theory. But yeah, it wasn't really until graduate school that I had any kind of real understanding of what it was. Victor, Rachel, what do you guys think political economy is? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, so I think kind of much like James, I, I didn't think much about political economy until, um, I mean, until I became a faculty member at the University of Washington. Um, I studied economics, both graduate and undergraduate levels, but both, um, neither of those schools did um, kind of, you know, did political economy as, you know, as far as kind of a, you know, a concrete subfield. And so I always kind of thought, you know, oh, of course, some economists study the intersection of economics and politics, but like, you know, I'd never really been exposed to it. Um, and when um, we were forming the, the political economy forum, um, I think it was James that when I, when I told him, I, you know, I, I don't think I have any expertise in this. Um, I'm not sure I'm the right person. And I think it was James that told me, well, you know, political economy is just the intersection of states and markets. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, I, and I think, you know, kind of everything James just said kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of is under that umbrella. Um, and so that kind of got me thinking pretty broadly, 
because it's, you know, it's, it's a rare market that operates totally um, independently, you know, of any sort of um, um, kind of state. Um, and then I think kind of, as I started kind of thinking about how that intersects with my own specific subfield, which is development economics, I think a lot of times in development, you know, there's kind of not a big role for a formal state, um, you know, a kind of a formally elected government, but there's much more of a role for kind of whether it's informal institutions or, um, you know, Bangladesh, where I do a lot of work, there's, you know, a really big NGO that kind of takes a lot of the kind of the same responsibilities that other, in other places, governments would do. And so that kind of got me, I mean, I, I don't know if other people would, you know, think of this as political economy, but within development economics, I, I started thinking a lot about how, how substitute kind of authority <laughs> figures or kind of authority bodies or even kind of informal institutions and norms, how those might kind of work like a state and, you know, kind of influence the economy in the same way that, you know, a state might be in, in other places. Victor, what do you think? Well, you know, I, I really like what both James and Rachel said. I think, you know, the way I could add some value here is to maybe offer a more formal definition and then to see if there's any challenges to that or an or addendum or, you know, further thoughts. Go for it. The way, is that fair? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, the way I see it is, first of all, comparing it to, comparing positive political economy to normative political economy and more historical approaches to political economy. So with normative political economy, at least the way I see it, that is rooted in the public choice approach, where basically you have very strong value judgments about distribution of wealth and power. And then you could offer some benchmarks like um, normatively optimal benchmarks using weighted utilitarian uh, calculations and say, oh, let's compare what we see in the world or what we'd like to see um, to these benchmarks. The historical approach is thick description. It's very much connected to economic history, but not uh, entirely. Um, folks like Carpoliani come to mind where you're describing states and markets, um, but you're not necessarily explaining them or understanding them in a systematic way. And so that's where I would come to the definition of positive political economy, the version I, I, I suppose I'm versed in or practice. And that's where you try to understand and explain um, social experience. You don't judge it and you don't just describe it. And if that's a fair distinction, I would say positive political economy is really special and unique. And that's what I think we've done the most of in the forum and where I think there's a lot of value. And that would be, it's very theoretical and rigorous and there are micro foundations. And to push back a bit against James, not to push back, but to say, well, if you were to draw a line in the sand, I do think the rational actor model is baseline at least is where you start with the positive political economy approach, at least the modern version. And that's where I think there's a lot of utility and where you can get into, well, forgive the terrible pun, but you, you can get into the intersection of politics and economics by having this unified framework and a coherent one. And so what does that mean for me? Definitely constrained optimization and strategic behavior. And what I mean by that is that you're pursuing goals, maybe 
material self-interest, maybe status, maybe other things that are less self-interested, but you're doing it in a way in which um, institutions are really setting pretty hard constraints on you. Um, and that means that there's economic behavior that can influence politics through those institutions, or there's political behavior in the marketplace because of the constraints, incentives, and opportunities afforded by the institutions. And so that to me at the end of the day is where we're at now in terms of if, I, if we take a step back, where's their consensus about what this is or what are people doing? I think there's still a lot of support for this idea and a lot of work around this idea, even though it goes back to the early 80s, we're still in that era of institutions as constraints, as directing human behavior, as reflecting it to a certain extent, but also aggregating individual preferences. And once you've got that, you can look at human actors as strategic, both adjusting to the institutions, but also trying to change them according to their own preferences. And you can look at a whole host of outcomes, like how you allocate resources uh, through markets and states. Um, and you look at the legal, economic, and political institutions that create those markets and states or that constrain them. You can look at not only the allocation of resources, but how efficiently they're allocated. So you could default down to microeconomics using that. You could look at distribution and public policies. And so the last thing I'll say is, how is this different than, than microeconomics? In my mind, it's important to keep those things distinct. And the big idea for me is that microeconomics is about decentralized voluntary exchange with no transaction co costs. And I'm taking this from Ronald Coase and others who follow in his footsteps. Maybe no market power, so this would be the neoclassical assumptions going back to, I suppose it's uh, Smith and Ricardo. I might be wrong there, and I, I would welcome corrections there, or Marshall at least, N and no externalities or very low externalities. But if you relax all those assumptions, that's where the politics comes in, into the political economy, still using rational actor models and constraint optimization and all this stuff and strategic interaction, but that's where you get stuff like collective action, collective decisions, and coercion actually, rather than voluntary exchange and hierarchy, hierarchy and coercion. That would mean that you get solutions or at least attempts to solve market failures, uh, even if there's distributional battles within that goal, and you get the role for governance, for the provision of public goods, and the, and the role of regulation. And again, that goes back to relaxing those fundamental microeconomic assumptions. And I would welcome Rachel schooling me and telling me I'm dead wrong on all that, but that's how I put it together, at least in a formal way. Like if I were to define it and explain it to, let's say, students in a class or something like that. But that, I'll leave it there, and I, I would welcome any reactions to that. So I'm not sure I've ever been invited to school anybody before now, so <laughs> I'm not sure I'll know how to do it. But uh, Victor, I, I know, um, you know, I, I know kind of um, we were exchanging kind of um, ideas beforehand. We kind of talked about maybe getting into the, um, you know, kind of the history of what political economy means. And so, that, you know, if I kind of reference the history, I, um, 
you know, might be getting a little ahead of our, ourselves. I mean, I think, I guess to, to kind of defend microeconomics that people that would kind of consider themselves just microeconomics that, you know, don't even bring in that political element. I mean, I think historically it very much was, you know, the kind of, you know, Adam Smith, invisible hand type, you know, no role for, or, you know, or coast, like everything's very efficient resources kind of go to, you know, their, um, their most efficient use. And, you know, there's kind of not a need for something like collective action because everything's kind of, you know, everything's all been solved right away. I mean, I think certainly kind of as economics has, has, has evolved, you know, kind of people are more likely to bring in things like, you know, market failures of various kinds, whether it's market power externalities or, you know, kind of transaction costs that are really important. Um, so I think that, you know, that's kind of evolved within economics. Um, you know, maybe kind of contemporaneously to thinking about um, political, um, political economy. But I think, you know, I think you don't necessarily have to be thinking about politics to bring in those, um, you know, some of those kind of departures from the, you know, Adam Smith invisible hand type of um, economics, but certainly it's a really important example of where, you know, where economics has kind of diverged from that kind of benchmark <laughs> Econ 101 case. Fair, that makes a lot of sense. In fact, maybe it's just been internalized and it could be that the term political is redundant then if, if these things have, if these lessons have been so internalized and, and modeled and become endogenized to use, you know, a technical, terrible, jargony term. Yeah, well, I, I think like, because I think like politics interacts in kind of very interesting ways with all of those kind of, you know, with all of these things you're mentioning, like, I mean, obviously externalities, like, you know, to take that as an example, we don't think that society is going to, um, you know, kind of internalize externalities without any sort of either, you know, kind of government making you do it or some sort of, you know, you mentioned kind of collective action, you know, there's got to be some kind of individually kind of behaving people aren't going to, um, you know, think about externalities without, you know, something that kind of compels them to and often that, you know, whatever isn't compelling them to, we, um, maybe we call it politics or not, but it's clearly something bigger than themselves. So I think maybe we're kind of converging on the same definition. Mm -hmm. it's, it's political economy very broadly defined. I like this idea, Victor, of taking political out of it, because the word out, because it should be redundant. Because I, uh, Rachel, when you were talking about your education and development economics, I had the same, I had the same experience. When I was taking like advanced development economics classes as an undergrad, you know, so you're like, okay, the, the Kenyan government has to make these decisions. It has this amount of, you know, capital, labor, and land, blah, blah, blah. You never really look inside whatever that black box is. And, and like, how is the government actually um, uh, an empowered actor that has agency that's actually affecting allocated decisions and has distributional concerns, like Victor said. And if anything, when I was an undergrad, I, I graduated in 2003, it was, it was always the government being at, at, the, at, at the best part of the story because they were somehow being abused or being manipulated by international political actors that were causing them to make certain kinds of decisions. But there was no sort of agency to the government in that decision-making power. And that to me is kind of a weird thing to think about in the education of economics, because it seems like maybe that's one of the reasons why, you know, there's sort of this, this belief that there's kind of an absence of understanding, you know, the application of economic thinking to the real world if you do it without a mind to politics. But I think if you do it with the way Victor suggested, then it, it very quickly becomes much more interesting, but also you have then a framework to actually explain all sorts of things. 
you know, market failure, failures, um, you know, distributional concerns that aren't necessarily optimal, you know, all, all these kinds of things in ways that I guess it took me a long time to kind of come to that understanding of that's what politics was adding to economics, but is it really adding anything that economics shouldn't already be doing? And Victor, that, that to me is kind of how I understand the argument you're making. The problem is if we take the politics out of political economy, we render ourselves obsolete, James, and then all our rents go away. So that's bad. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we would be bad economists in that, in that we would well, also we be bad political yeah, scientists. a job. But I think, I mean, I think the point is, is that, you know, if you're talking about, I mean, I mean, in the, in the kinds of things that the three of us happen to research, if you take the government out, you don't really ever have a, there's no story. I mean, you know, Rachel was talking about Bangladesh, you know, even, in, even with the work that NGOs are doing in Bangladesh, the government of Bangladesh is very important to whether Bangladesh develops or not, right? In, India, same thing. It's true in every country. And I think probably most economists get there. Like they get there eventually, they know that. And they either then explicitly exploit something like a change in policy that we would as political scientists consider, you know, quote unquote politics or, or using, you know, variation in political administrative units or things like that or variation in regime type and things like that. But it's probably at this point so obvious for a lot of people who work on those issues, whether it's macro or micro, that unless you're really explicit about it at the, at the outset, people just won't realize that until very late in their education. And that to me is very surprising because it seems like that's where economics should sort of maybe start from. That's great. Uh, did anybody want to add anything on this question or should, should we move on? Well, I think we should talk about the subjects of study that political economy has, uh, you know, people who consider themselves political economists have, I mean, the specific questions they've asked beyond the sort of framework that they use you know, since Adam Smith. That's great. So why don't you talk about what has political economy meant historically as a field of study and what are the topics that it has engaged with from Adam Smith to the 20th century? Uh, so how do political institutions and actors shape economic outcomes and how do market actors and institutions shape political outcomes? James, would you, gonna, would you wanna go first? Well, I, I'm curious to hear what, uh, what Rachel and Victor have to say. I want to do a plug for, for Marx, though, not in the sense that I, I agree with Marx, but also that I think, Victor, there's a little bit of an alternative understanding of the use of, of the phrase political economy. I think there are people today in the social sciences who call themselves political economists or who do political economy, but from a Marxist lens. And I think whether or not that actually fits some of the, the assumptions and rational choice theory, probably not, or maybe just a little bit, but the sort of the broad view of, okay, aspects of economic life can drive political outcomes is not specifically Marxist, but I, I think there are a lot of people in the Marxist tradition today who sort of look at things a little bit differently than you might describe, but would still call themselves political economists. And there, I think the contribution of Marx to political economy or just the, the attention to class, you know, has been obviously a huge concern for all manner of scholars over the last few hundred years, for sure. Victor, Rachel, would you want to add something to that? I definitely want to hear from Rachel on this, and especially how economists view Marx today or what they make of the legacy of the study of Marx or the Marxist approach to economics. Right, right. No, it's a good question. It's, it's, it's also a, um, um, a, a, a difficult one. But, um, um, but I think 
it's kind of as I was reflecting on the kind of, you know, what, what's been the kind of evolution of the study of political economy. Um, one thing that I kind of thought about was how, you know, kind of economics and, you know, of course, like all, I assume political science too, and, you know, all, all fields are doing this are kind of getting better at better at empirical analysis. And, you know, since economists like to think about causality, you were kind of getting um, better and better at plausibly causal estimates of, you know, the effect of different, different phenomena. And so um, with, you know, when I think about kind of Marx, I think about the better estimates of market power of, is it indeed the case that, you know, kind of the owners of capital really can, you know, get way more um, so-called rents than the owners of, than labor. And so, um, well, I think that, you know, kind of many economists, I think, would not say consider themselves Marxist per se, but certainly kind of pay a lot of those kind of, you know, distributional questions the way that, you know, that I understand kind of Marx did. Um, And as I kind of mentioned, you know, kind of using increasingly kind of more sophisticated tools to really try to kind of say, like, how can we really kind of pinpoint, you know, kind of a policy that gives more power to owners of capital? Like, how does that affect workers? And we're kind of getting kind of really precise um, kind of estimates. So I think that's maybe how economists would engage with Marx today. Victor, thoughts? You know, I have mixed feelings about the Marxist contribution to political economy. I think in terms of asking big questions and setting the terms of the debate, it's been helpful as a benchmark, but often I don't feel it's allowed as much progress as merits its impact or outsized influence, I guess. And this goes back to Rachel with Tendering hypotheses that can be empirically corroborated, and especially with causal inference, I think because it's so big picture and so structural, if I can use that word, whatever that means, at least for me, it's always hard to understand exactly what we would have to show to um, falsify it or tentatively reject it, right? What are the empirical implications where we could have some tests or we could have some research designs that help us gain traction and we can say this is either right or wrong and move on Uh, or say oh here are puzzles now presented by this data that we've got or or these findings that either challenge Marxist understandings or refine them and I feel that there's something about the Marxist legacy that is a little impervious to making the progress you can with micro foundations, right? And maybe Marxists would agree with this and they would say, you know, our role is to worry less about rigor and worry more about are these things being discussed like class or hierarchy or even oppression, are these things being considered? And then like the, the dirty work or God's work is left to folks like James and Rachel to actually go into the field and get the data or run the field experiments to gain traction on this at a more micro level. But really right now I'm just bloviating. What I know from Marx in terms of why I'm disappointed is that the big predictions in my mind just are not borne out. And I do wonder if the big predictions are not borne out, why do we keep harping on Marx when if you think of other sciences, like think of Lamarck versus Darwin, we've just moved on because Darwin, the weight of the evidence seems to suggest that Darwin was right. Well, so, I, have, 
I have yeah, a potential go ahead, go ahead answer. Challenge everything I'm saying. If you no, no, that. I mean, I this is and 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 I was going to say to Rachel, you know, political scientists never actually read Machiavelli, Locke, Hobbes, and Rousseau. I'm curious if economists ever actually read Das Kapital or not. But anyway, what <laughs> I would say, what I would say, Victor, is that I think what's interesting about Marx is ostensibly Marx has had a bigger impact on politics than economics, not in, in the sense that there have been actual Marx, you know, Marxist regimes. But I think the the interesting thing there is that Marx actually isn't at all, is not interesting for politics. What's interesting for politics is not what Marx said about politics. What's interesting about, you know, so-called Marxist regimes in the actual world is that they're Leninist or that they could have been Trotskyite or that they are Stalinist or that they are, you know, China. And there, Marx actually isn't telling us a lot as political scientists about how what we want, you know, how we want to study what are otherwise just you know, either military dictatorships or one-party regimes. You know, in that instance, then Marx is sort of irrelevant to understanding the politics of the moment, which I think is very interesting because I think most people sort of see Marx as having this huge impact on the actual politics of the world in the 20th century, and that may be true, but how political scientists then study what are ostensibly communist regimes, you know, is not really informed by Marx. That then causes me to sort of tell students, you know, when I'm teaching stuff on political economy and saying like precisely what Rachel said, which is maybe the contribution is more about thinking about class being a variable that matters sort of in general or people's conception of where they fall on the distribution of income or within certain classes, does that actually matter? And can we actually study that in a way that's meaningful? Like does Marx just kind of give us a a concern and a, and a way to care about certain things that we then study as opposed to as opposed to a way to actually study them. So I'll just throw out a question and um, just maybe for my edification and maybe for listeners too. Um, and now I'm, I can't remember whether James or Victor said it, but kind of made the statement that, oh, Marx's main predictions didn't, um, you know, didn't pan out. And so is that the kind of, are you talking about the sense that you know, labor will rise up and, you know, take the means of production? Or I'm just kind of curious what, what you're kind of thinking of as far as the, you know, predictions didn't pan out. Well, it was the when and where, right, Victor? You know, he predicted so it would be the major, Okay, I might be right. wrong, by the way. Maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe this is above my pay grade. But to me, the main prediction was that capitalism can say, contains seeds of its own destruction or will undermine itself because absolute living standards for those at the bottom will stagnate. And that is just unequivocally false. I'm not saying anything about the relative distribution. Obviously, there's massive inequalities in wealth, income, and even consumption, I suppose, although that's a really thorny issue with consumption, right? And you guys would know this much better than me on consumption. But on, on these other dimensions, that just didn't happen. And another big prediction was massive unemployment due to automation and innovation. But that didn't turn out either. If anything, unemployment is lower than it was in Marxist day by a lot. And innovation is the engine of greater employment because dynamic efficiency is what drives economic growth. And in I've always been a big fan of Schumpeter because I think he understood what Marx didn't, which is that unlocking innovation was the key to making human progress available to more people. We have 8 billion people on earth. And um, even though, again, the relative differences might be greater in absolute terms, there's no question that we're so much better off than we were 250 years ago, 200 years ago, 
100 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago. And so that's the big failure as, as a positive social scientist, I think. And my hypothesis as to why those failings are there, why the framework isn't as strong as it might be, is because it doesn't do justice to individual, the methodology of individual choice. And that's where I think positive political economy has been able to make more progress. So it does go back to the lack of micro foundations, I think. And forget about microeconomics, the micro foundations when it comes to the political part of political economy, like collective action, collective decisions, how coercion really works, how hierarchies really work, where I think folks like Ronald Coase and the industrial organization theorists tell us a lot more when it comes to principal agent issues or information issues within organizations and models of strategic signaling or screening and things like that. That's where I feel the contribution's been much greater in terms of understanding not only markets, but also what Marx thought he was giving us, an understanding of states or an understanding of organizations. I think because of the rigors of having individuals at the center and and viewing them as rational and viewing them as maximizing their preferences under constraints, these more orthodox approaches have been much more successful, but get less credit, I suppose, by the median political scientists or most folks on the street, you know, most folks that are uninitiated in this stuff, uh, journalists or politically active people or just John Q. Citizen, I suppose. I could be wrong. Again, I'm just speculating and musing here and trying to figure out or grapple with the contradiction or the paradox between the outsized influence Mark has on, Marx has on people's imagination versus the actual like rubber meets the road positive empirical contributions and then that begs the question well what are the theoretical contributions then and I just don't see them as a social scientist. I wonder though if like as you lay that out Victor if maybe what Marx did was lay out the kind of inevitable progression of things like if the behavior of government and you know elites and capital you know owners of capital didn't change and i think this is kind of where the the building in the micro foundations of you know behavior that you mentioned kind of comes in because i wonder if you know because you because agreed you know living standards have kept going up and that's you know wonderful kind of for for you know the globe um um but there's also kind of at least some sense that maybe governments know that you know, the rich can't get too powerful. And maybe people will listen to this in the current US context and say, haha, that's like patently false. But like, I'm thinking of, for instance, like, you know, evidence that um, a lot of Latin American countries have conditional cash transfers and um, papers have, you know, research has shown that like people that get those are more likely to support the, you know, the government that gives that to them. So maybe you call that patronage and that's you know, not a great way for things to be going. But like, you know, it is redistribution. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of really, really unequal countries. I wonder if there's like, at least Marx said this is inevitable, but like he was forgetting that maybe the behavior would, you know, of those in power would change. But it's still kind of, I guess, I guess my point is it's maybe still a useful kind of counterfactual to say, you know, maybe this would happen if there wasn't attention paid to redistribution at least a little bit. James, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this or Beatrice. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, Rachel, I think that's a really good point because I mean, maybe for, for politics, what Mark, I mean, Marx had a political project and in, in, in kind of answer to some of your question, like I think if we think of the particularities of how that worked out in say Cuba or Russia, we tend to not really look at Marx. Again, we, we look at like Lenin or Castro, but I think maybe his biggest, his biggest contribution is just pulling out class and class consciousness as an important variable that's going to predict political preferences, political access on kind of the demand side, and then per perhaps on the supply side too, if you take out a Marxist regime, but even in a, in a democracy on the supply side, whether or not the government is going to look at class or consider class in its, as class in its redistributive policies. Now, I think that one of the counterfactuals is, would that have happened anyway? Like, would that have just been the natural evolution of you know, political and economic development in industrialized countries anyway. Like, do we really need Marx to tell people that people on the lower end of the income distribution want higher taxes on the rich and, and pro-poor policies or vice versa? Because the problem is, is that the political institutions are developing at the same time as the economic institutions. So we can't really go before Marx and see a lot of evidence of political parties and, you know, what evidence we have, for instance, from the United States suggests that the parties were not really defined around class interests as much as regional interest or, or specific interests based on where they, they lived relative to land or industry, but not really class in the Marxist sense, I would say. So maybe if that's Marx's greatest contribution, but it wouldn't have happened anyway, then Marx is kind of irrelevant. What about Adam Smith? What was his biggest contribution to political economy, according to you? Well, he's a dirty name, Victor, isn't he? Adam Smith has been really dragged through the mud recently. <laughs> I mean, going on the other, the other end of what you're saying, why, why is that, Victor? Why is Adam Smith this... Adam Smith has to be canceled now for a lot of people, but why is that? I have no idea in terms of why. I do wonder if Adam Smith is a boogeyman where people project all their fear and loathing about capitalism and markets yes, onto yes. Adam Smith. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm suggesting. So why, right. why is that, do you think? Well, the deeper question, what is the fear and loathing about capitalism? I've, I myself struggle with what exactly is the problem. My own theory is people don't like market failures that go unattended, but that's not the fault of capitalism. Those are governance problems. That's the fault of politics. That's the fault. Well, and that's of what Marx was saying, right? I mean, Marx more or less said yes. that. So maybe that's why Marx has a lot of purchase because he solves the problem that people have with markets and capitalism. Maybe, but I think that I think the critique goes deeper, though, and the critique runs along these lines. And this might be a straw man. I really need some pushback on this because maybe I'm just co-opting right-wing talking points. Someone might accuse me of, even though that's not my perspective at all, personally or politically or what have you, but. It's that capitalism is fundamentally broken, it's oppressive, it's about zero-sum interactions. When microeconomics tells us the opposite, it's about positive-sum interactions, and it's about growing the pie because of the efficient allocation of resources, uh, productive efficiency once those resources are allocated, and dynamic efficiency, as I mentioned with Schumpeter, and then solo, roamer, endogenous growth theory, or just study of technology and the study of innovation and entrepreneurship. So I guess maybe folks aren't buying what economists are selling and they see things like increasing income inequality or 
uh, maybe cronyism and corruption as not a market failure or a unfortunate side effect that can be corrected, but as rot that is endemic to capitalism itself. And if they take that point of view, obviously your punching bag is Adam Smith because like it or not, he's the godfather of that approach or at least singing the, not not necessarily the approach, but singing the virtues of the system, whatever approach you use to analyze that system. This is where Rachel could bail me out. Do I have anything right here? No, no, I totally agree with you that, you know, I think kind of, I think the sense of there being an invisible hand is very powerful and kind of, you know, leads exactly to those kind of positive sum interactions that we just talked about. Uh, but it is true that like for, for that to be you know, the most efficient solution, you need to do things like assume away externalities. And I mean, I don't think it's fair to say, you know, kind of, I think sometimes people, uh, you know, blame Adam Smith for kind of assuming away externalities. And that's, you know, that's not what he did. He just said, you know, if there's not, then this is what's going to happen. And it's probably a pretty good outcome. But I think, I mean, Rachel, one of the things I'm hearing Victor say is that economics itself for capitalism has become politicized in a way that it's bad which is paradoxical at the same time that free markets have actually caused, I mean, astronomical gains in human wealth over the last, you know, 70 to 100 years. So how do economists think about the the political side of this, which is that like basically capitalism, free markets, whatever, have become a hotbed political issue and people are honestly divided about it. I mean, in ways that are very, very deep. Right. I don't know if this sounds reductive if I frame it this way, so I'm going to just say it and then you can tell me if, if, if it is. I think I think economists are thinking of it as kind of largely a, a kind of a PR type problem <laughs> that um, if people think, oh, economists, they're just, you know, they're all kind of, you know, right wing stooges and they just think, you know, let the market decide. Like, you know, that's, that's kind of not, I mean, to take it to the extreme, if we all just thought, you know, every market works the way in the kind of econ 101, you know, benchmark Adam Smith case of like, you know, no externalities and everything is smooth and no transaction costs, then like, none of us would have jobs because <laughs> like you know that's just there, there's no kind of government involvement at all i mean there, there shouldn't be in those kind of very extreme cases we all study the cases where you know the benchmark adam smith case doesn't hold um and so i think in, in the kind of coming what i meant by kind of a pr issue is that i think a lot of people are thinking about we need to teach economics better because a lot of a lot of majors do require their students to take you know a couple one or two courses of economics and if, you know, they just hear over and over again, invisible hand, invisible hand, then they kind of, you know, they're really going to think that, that that's what economics is, is about. Things being kind of in, in that perfect case where there's not much of a role for government um, involvement. And, and also that, I mean, so I think that's maybe one failure is that like they kind of, econ- they think economists just think markets are perfect always. And also there's kind of less sense of, there's a kind of fetishization of efficiency over equality concerns. And so I think people are also trying to kind of bring those concerns into um, into introductory economics classes to try to say like, look, you know, if you if you have a market-based solution to, to something, then that doesn't, you know, carbon tax or a, you know, an earned income tax credit or kind of, you know, many kind of examples of in that vein, then, you know, that doesn't mean it's, it's kind of some cold-hearted solution that's, it's just, you know, the market that thinks the market, you know, rules above all and that we, you know, don't care about winners and losers. I, I agree with, with what Rachel just said. And I wonder too, Rachel, whether part of it is that economists always sort of have a bad reputation. It just depends on what time period you're talking about. Because when I, when I teach African <laughs> political development, you know, I, I sort of have to teach 
you know, okay, how did Kwame Nkrumah or Julius Nyerere, who we wouldn't call them Marxists, but we would call them sort of developmentalists, you know, developmental state, you know, late 50s, early 60s, you know, they were inheriting states and economies that were highly distortionary, and they pursued a set of policies that were distortionary in a different direction. And it's easy to kind of look back and say Nkrumah and Nerere didn't really get it right. And if they had liberalized sooner, those, those economies would be stronger. But I think they had good motives. I think they just didn't do, I, I think it required some experimentation and acquired, uh, required some learning. And, you know, if you look at Ghana, for instance, that has happened over time. You know, Ghana tried this approach under Nkrumah and then it, it relaxed that approach. It tried opening up its markets and Ghana is, is fairly successful today. But I wonder if economists are always blamed for whatever the failure is of the moment, right? And so we don't, so the moment now is, is basically, you know, there are very few developmental states. It's, it's, you know, most states are, have liberal economies to some degree or another. And so now it's the moment of where is that failing and are we blaming the system for that failure in the way that we blame a developmental economic approach for why Ghana was, you know, not developing in the 50s and 60s. Maybe economists are the messenger and folks shoot down the messenger. There's this myth that economists are prescribing things that get adopted in policy whole cloth, when in fact, my own theory, and this is political economy at its best, is that politicians selectively use bits and pieces of economics to suit their own political interests. There's never a full-bodied or full-throated adoption of what you would call neoliberal policies or the epitha, the Washington consensus. It's, well, if we're in a jam and some economists prescribe austerity, but that's also what the World Bank wants, and it's maybe for good reason because we live beyond our means and we do have structural imbalances, well, let's blame the economists because it's like blaming, you know, a surgeon that's conducting an emergency uh, operation on you when you show up with bullet wounds at the ER and uh, maybe you lose the patient, but you tried your best. But, oh, well, you could just blame the surgeon for not doing a heroic <laughs> effort, right? So, so many of the times, again, this is speculation, economists are called in or, or their voices are heard the most when the patient is really sick, and maybe the patient is sick, not because of what the economists prescribe, but because they're doing what the economists did not prescribe, which is what you said, distorting markets. So I don't know. I think they're a convenient scapegoat just to protect and defend economists uh, if they're feeling unsafe. Um, but uh, I would love to hear Rachel's thoughts on economists in general. Maybe Adam Smith is the taking this to its... Um, at most, right? It, it, it's the example of the message from economics, or sorry, the messenger for economics being uh, castigated for the message. So punishing the messenger because you don't like the message. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I, I totally agree. So I guess maybe that's, a, that's what I have to add is, is, is agreement. But I, I like the analogy of the, you know, the surgeon didn't save the patient. Is that the, you know, the surgeon's <laughs> fault? So yeah, I mean, I think economists do, you know, try to kind of point out issues that, you know, might lead to, say, a recession or, but, you know, kind of getting those suggestions adapted is, I guess, another, you know, another consideration, but maybe, maybe the answer is economists need to get better at political economy ourselves, because I think we may not be the best at write op-eds or whatever, and, you know, kind of say this should really happen. And, you know, people kind of go and work for the government so that, um, that's a pretty direct link to policy, but we could probably as a field do better than think about ways to do better to kind of, you know, not just be the voice shouting into the wilderness. 
with our suggestions. Well, Rachel, you're going a little bit easy on actual politicians with that assertion, I would say, because I think, you know, one of the things that I try to impart with students, and it's hard because we have so many examples of just very venal and nefarious politicians doing the thing that was really, really bad. Um, and, and then having a bad outcome. But it's actually, you know, you have to give some credit. Like if we just take, for instance, Ghana over a long period of time, give a large generation of political leaders credit for experimentation, for trying different things, for, for seeing if something's gonna work and then it doesn't, and then kind of going to something else and, and all the constraints that they face. And yeah, a lot of times they make bad decisions and do the wrong thing, but they, they, they don't always do it for, the, for a bad reason. Sometimes they do it because it just didn't work and they were trying and, and they need to try better. You know, there's a difference between like a Mugabe inheriting Zimbabwe's economy and Nelson Mandela inheriting South Africa's economy. And Mugabe did the wrong thing and he knew it was wrong and he did it for the wrong reasons. And the ANC has tried various things within constraints, obviously. But, you know, it doesn't always work out, not because they didn't try or have the right motives, but just because things don't always work and you have to experiment and you have to learn. And we still don't even know, you know, a lot of things. Um, about what exact public policy, you know, given any endowments that a country has and the constraints that they face, what public policies they should pursue, even if they all, even if all those political leaders agree on what the outcome should be. James, though, there is a consensus, and economists have helped with this, about public goods, institutions, uh, sorry, not institutions, um, public goods, education, research and development, the acquisition of technology, and I guess political scientists and um, legal analysts deserve credit for this, just the rule of law in general. So I do think there is a basic consensus. And I don't disagree with that, but then, okay, but let's say you're not, you know, you're the ANC, you've just taken power in 1994 and apartheid has ended. Okay, well, what does that mean in South Africa? How does that work in South Africa? I don't think they disagree on necessarily the tools but they're inheriting you know, political, economic, and social realities that make it very hard for, for them, for anybody to figure out what's the next step. True, so how to get from point A to point B. Point yeah, and B nobody's B. willing to say it, just, it may just take time, right? We always, I mean, this is the problem of politics with economics, I think, is that politics doesn't run on the same timeline as markets do, right. or, or just economic thinking, and people aren't ever willing to sort of be honest about that. Well, this is where I think Darren Asimoglu and Jim Robinson have made a huge impact on me. And their ba basic thesis, and they've gotten a lot of traction with this, is that it's about credible commitments. And they're drawing on, on Doug North and Barry Weingast and other political scientists and economists in that if you can't credibly commit to protect the rents or status or whatever they want out of uh, ruling, if you can't protect those basic interests or rights of the incumbents, they have no interest in transitioning to a more efficient outcome because doing that will pave the way for them to become obsolete and for them to maybe see a prison cell or at least have their stuff taken from them uh, or the basis of their power and rents emasculated or or uh, vanish entirely. And that is one of the basic, and maybe uh, Beatrice could transition us to this, what are the basic insights from political economy that add a lot of value? I think this is a huge one. That efficiency and distribution, again, I'm just cribbing on uh, S.M. Robinson, and Johnson, actually. Um, efficiency and distribution can never be divorced. 
And you can't just get more efficient solutions because social welfare maximizing robots don't run governments. Self-interested actors do. And if their slice of the pie is threatened by more efficient policies, they will keep distorting, over-regulating or under-regulating, not, not solving market failures, if that's what allows them to remain in office and allows them to keep generating rents. And so I think that is an insight that I wish other people would um, acknowledge and take and run with it in more work beyond just political economy, because I think it has a lot of social implications and implications that just go beyond narrow economic uh, policies or even broad political institutional implications about regime types or about the type of governance or regulation you'll have. What I can say on the social, here's a, a possible addendum to their thesis, a reactionary conservative culture might also be a strategic might be the outgrowth of a strategic set of decisions by incumbents who fear that their rents will disappear with more sound or economically efficient institutions and policies. So like not only right-wing governments that might, let's say, trample on individual rights and liberties or, or try to keep liberal democracy at bay, but they might also in a proactive way try to spread more hidebound ideologies and ways of living that are oppressive or sexist or classist. So that itself might be an implication from this fundamental insights about distribution and efficiency. And that, just to return to the original question about what is political economy, what are its contributions, I think this could be a major contribution itself. And these contributions go back to Marx, and they go back to Adam Smith, and they go back to the classical political economists to talk about the history of political economy, like David Ricardo, or even Max Weber, I would put in there, even though he's a sociologist or considered one. Thorsten Veblen, who talked a lot about economics, but also sociology and, and some politics, and on and on for those uh, Schumpeter, as I mentioned earlier. So I don't know if this addresses some of these issues we're talking about. But I would say the, the final thing for me, just like Rachel being very self-effacing in terms of the discipline of economics should be humble, same goes for political science. You know, We should be humble and admit that we don't know enough about microeconomics as we should. And a lot of times, you know, the opposite problem of not solving market failures or acknowledging the role of politics is to not acknowledge that we may have a hammer and view everything as a nail, view everything as a market failure, when in fact that's a theoretical and empirical question. Another cure of mine or someone who's had a huge impact on me is Ronald Coase, because I think he proposes a systematic way to do that, which is to say to identify when there is a market failure versus not. And I think po political scientists and, and politicians informed by political ideologies that political scientists have a role to play in sometimes go overboard and view everything as a market failure when in fact a decentralized way of solving things, maybe by reducing transaction costs at the margin would be enough to solve a, a social problem where you don't need heavy handed interventions or regulations. And, and you could save the state for the big questions, the big problems where there is unequivocally a market failure, where you do need the big guns of regulation, taxation, a more active role of government. So I'll leave, I don't know, those are a bunch of random thoughts, but hopefully there's some cohesive connection to things we've discussed here.
I think Victor introduced um, my next, next question very well. So we have discussed the history of political economy. And now I would like to hear more about what list of issues and topics you think political economy has confronted and will confront in the 21st century. And is there an emerging political economy agenda? James or Rachel, do you want to go first? I'm happy to start. Um, so I think one thing that, that I've been thinking about is um, that's, that's very current in economics and very exciting and also uh, you know, I expect will be kind of very important kind of moving into the future is um, kind of is the sense that the really long-term effects of um, kind of previous, whether it's cultural institutions or formal government policies, um, you know, that you can actually kind of see effects, you know, 500 years into the future. Um, you know, obviously historic, you know, now we're kind of learning about, you know, effects of policies in say the, you know, 1600s or even earlier and kind of marrying this with, as I was mentioning, the kind of, you know, it's, it's obviously a hugely hard empirical question to try to kind of tease out causal effects, but people are doing really exciting um, research using things like, you know, the, the um, you know, the kind of kind of different effects, whether you're on the discontinent, you know, kind of, there was a boundary where the government had one policy in one area and another and, you know, another and like kind of, you can find effects of that boundary today. Um, and I think the kind of leader of this type of research is um, somebody named Melissa um, Dell, who um, just won the John Bates Clark Medal in economics, which um, people like to point out is even more prestigious than the Nobel Prize because only one person can, can, can win per year. So, uh, you know, kind of quite, quite a high honor. Um, and she's really kind of at the forefront of, you know, kind of showing things like, um, you know, she has a very famous paper in Peru that, you know, showed that, you know, kind of areas that used coerced labor, you know, 400 years ago are poorer today. And so um, it's a super long-term effect, you know, kind of, and it, I can kind of see research fleshing out, you know, what are the kind of different mechanisms, um, why that still matters, you know, kind of, are there complementary government policies that can try to kind of counteract some of those long-term negative effects? Um, so I think that's kind of a really interesting area moving forward. I agree with that. And uh, Rachel, I, I love the reference to Melissa Dell because I think one of the things that's interesting about kind of where I see political economy now and where it's going is that I think between political scientists who consider themselves political economists and um, economists who sort of work in this realm, there's definitely kind of a convergence of, I think, Victor's theoretical framework. There's a convergence of kind of founding assumptions of the importance of understanding causal inference of, of you know, testing theory with empirical data. And there's a lot of convergence. But I think there's also what's happening, and Melissa Dell, I think, is a great example, cross-fertilization with other disciplines like history and like anthropology. You know, econ development economists now studying social institutions. And, and what you described in terms of the, perhaps the institutional or policy effects of, of things that happened a long time ago. And, you know, you can't, when you do that, you know, you can be the perfect econometrician, but you can't be a bad historian when you do that. You know, and I, so I'm thinking of Nathan Nunn's work and, and Melissa Dell, they're, they, they pay due diligence to the actual context that they're studying in ways that economists, it seems like probably are a little bit yes, less used to. And, and we think of maybe an anthropologist or an historian kind of being closer to that. And I think that's also happening a little bit in political science in the sense of what Victor talked about with, you know, maybe looking at some social interactions that are uh, maybe a little bit more informal, but still matter uh, with informal institutions or two formal institutions. 
but also I think not overplaying history as this, you know, I, I, not to go back to Marx, but not, not to basically be so absorbed by the historical development of political institutions that you can't see any ability today to move things or, or to experiment or to be creative or to be nimble, that everything is just so baked in, but also not to be completely blinded to it either and, and realize that, you know, e political institutions allow some flexibility, but not complete flexibility, unless we're talking about a regime change or something really dramatic. And, and I think that's a, that's a tension that political scientists are having to deal with now. And people that previously sort of just ignored political development and, and things over time aren't able to do that at the same time that we don't want that to necessarily eclipse our ability to think about variation in institutional actors or institutional behavior in the present moment as being so wrapped up in in whatever they've inherited with no room to move. James and Rachel started with a personalized anthropology, so to speak, of how they came to political economy or how they came to understand it. I guess I'll finish up, I'll wrap up, echoing that with my answer to this question about the future in terms of my own interest in my own work. And I would say, agreeing totally with James about inter, the interdisciplinary tolerance and political economy, for me, fundamental microeconomics, sociology, and management studies have made a huge impact over the last six years. And it's funny how just basic microeconomics for me, going back to introductory textbooks and working through simple models, has enlightened me to the possibilities of marrying all these things from first principles and seeing how they can connect with each other. So what do I mean? That sounds really broad and vague, but I stated earlier that Schumpeter got things right and Marx wrong and that innovation is the key to everything, not only prosperity, but the modern world. I didn't say that as much, but it is really the way we live, how we think, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation now, the fact that there was a pandemic, but the way we've adjusted to the pandemic, the fact that we all have supercomputers in our pockets and are addicted to social media, uh, and maybe our attention spans are shorter, but maybe our bandwidth has increased because we're stressing our cognitive muscles more and are in better shape, cognitively speaking, because of that, right? All these things, these things go back to capitalism and the study of capitalism being very important because it, whether we judge it harshly or not, you know, speaking of technology, that's just the notification I got. I'm sorry for that sound. Speaking of that, we need to understand technology and where it's leading us, even if we judge it harshly or judge the structure that brought it about, you know, the markets we call capitalism, in conjunction with the government, you know, solving market failures, or even creating these markets uh, as a partner in bringing innovations to the fore. So, how do sociology and management studies help? Well, if innovation is so important, and this is what I've been preoccupied with the last five to six years, it's not necessarily the development of innovation or its commercialization that matters because we understand that quite well. Going back to Schumpeter, work by Kenneth Arrow, work by a lot of smart economists like Dan Spolber on the commercialization of innovation and how in intellectual property rights and trade and in, in foreign investment, actually uh, Romer, Paul Romer's work is also really good on this. We understand that Grossman and Helpman would be two other um, macroeconomists that come to mind when it comes to that. But what I think we understand less well, and this is where political science, sociology, management studies, 
even developmental economics, like what James does with his study of cell phones and corruption in Afghanistan. James, you could correct me if I'm wrong on that in a bit. We have to understand using those folks and their research, how technology spreads, how technology is adjusted and adapted to different conditions in the uh, developing world, how innovation can take off in the periphery, even though it's been the core countries like England, um, or at least Great Britain, sorry, the Netherlands, the United States, Germany, uh, later Japan. We might even include China when it comes to digital technologies. That's all well and good in terms of how that's happened through a hub and spoke type system. But how are the outer rims now in the developing world coming up with the innovations or at least adjusting them to drive the new wave of innovation in the future when it comes to artificial intelligence and the internet of things and the fact that automation is happening at an accelerated pace across all kinds of spheres of life and the economy. So that's where I actually think it's an exciting place for political economists to be even more interdisciplinary, to look at how networks work, to look at how firms cooperate, to look at how people jump from jobs to jobs, to look at how agglomeration effects in big cities might radiate out, especially after COVID, with people maybe working remotely, and how um, new technologies will, will spread and evolve and change you know, the human story once again after the beginnings of capitalism, you know, going back to Adam Smith, understanding that with specialization, and then some of these other uh, economists understanding the dynamics of that historically, including Marx, who got a lot wrong, but he actually did get some right, and, and maybe a lot right with innovation, at least in terms of how important it would be, not necessarily understanding its implications fully or, or coming up with predictions that turned out, at least not yet. So that's what I would leave us with, uh, the study of technology innovation and what I, what others call the fourth industrial revolution and using cultural studies, sociology, management studies, and maybe even a softer approach, maybe even relaxing the individual rational actor to understand the incentives, opportunities, but also how preferences are driven. And that'll drive the uptake and adjustment of these technologies. So in a very humble way, I've learned a lot from these folks. And I hope to contribute at the margins. If anything, I'll just be a, a, a student and be able to convey what I've learned to others. That, to me, is an exciting place to, to look. Economic history, evolutionary economics, and all the political economy we've been talking about here, I think, together afford, or furnish a lot of interesting insights that I hope uh, listeners will take us up on. No, I thought that was a great wrap up to exciting, to, to think about exciting potential uh, future research. I agree. I think we should basically end it after what, what Victor said. Um, I, you know, I, I was going to touch on behavioral political economy, but Victor basically mentioned it without saying it. And so I think where he's, where he stops is a great place to end it. I would like to thank everyone, James, Rachel, and Victor, for participating today on this podcast on what is political economy.